Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 73rd episode of the Tuesday Night Podcast. I'm your host, SBJ, and with me today, I have Logan. Oh, hey. Hi. It's Hi. me again. You're back. Two I'm weeks back. in a it's... row. Yeah, it's crazy. I'm back. That's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we also have Sean, part of Tuesday Hello. Night Games. That's right. That's right. Stupid part. No, Alan. We're recording this on Tuesday nights for some reason. We've moved from Thursdays to Tuesdays for recording purposes. Hopefully, I don't know if that's that's permanent or not. But um, Alan plays games every Tuesday night. Who would have guessed? <laughs> but since none of us play games, we're going to record a podcast about board games. This is a podcast about board games, tabletop games, games you can play on or under your table. Our show is just going to consist of. I think Logan's played a couple things. Sean's played one or two things. I want to address World Championship Russian Roulette. That just shipped. I actually have mm. my copy sitting on my desk here. And Ooh, I have interesting. Me too. I have some things to say about it. Cool. And Logan has a new D&D podcast he talked about a little bit last week, but I, I wanted to bring that up too just because D&D is, is a big part of the board gaming world, the tabletop world. Yeah. Uh, before we get into board games, let's talk about one non-board game. The Nintendo Switch just came out uh, this Ooh. past weekend, and 1-2-Switch uh, is a game that I was excited for because I thought that it would fall along the lines of Jackbox, and I think... I think all of us agree, and, and Alan, I'll speak for Alan since he's not here, that Jackbox <laughs> is a really good crossover that bridges the gap between a board game and a video game. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, Jackbox, if you don't know, is kind of like a... Uh, you can all sign in to Jackbox TV on your television with your phones, right? So you could play it at a party, and you could just do all sorts of little games. Like, my girlfriend just got it for her Amazon Fire Stick, and we played a game called Fibbage, which is where... Uh, the game asks you some crazy, uh, like, trivia question, and you both submit a lie, like an answer that is fake. And then um, it puts up the real answer, a lie by Jackbox, and everybody else's lies, and you try to guess which one is right. And you get points when people guess your lie, and you get points for guessing the right answer. And we just did that literally for, like, four hours before the Oscars the other day. We just sat on the couch, ate chips, and pretend lied in a trivia game against each other. It was super fun. <laughs> Fibbage is super great. Yeah, all of, all of Jackbox is super great. Now, Sean doesn't have a, a Switch, but Logan and I both got 1-2-Switch. Before we started recording, Logan was like, we could, we could talk about 1-2-Switch because it's, it, it crosses that line between board game and, and video game. And I was like, but it's so bad. Right. <laughs> you used even like worse terminology for how bad it was. <laughs> and initially I thought, oh, Logan's going to bring it up because he had this great, great experience with it, but it doesn't seem like you, you did. <laughs> I mean, it was it was fun. It's just like, I don't think it's $50 of fun, but I do think that everyone should experience theoretical ping pong once in their lives because that's a weird thing. What what makes this, this ping pong different than Wii Sports Tennis? Uh, the difference is that you're looking at each other and there's no visualization of what's happening. You're You're basing everything on sound, which is very... It's like playing ping pong if you're daredevil. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Except that you're not daredevil. The one, the one caveat there is you're not actually daredevil, so you just have to rely on normal human hearing. Hmm. Is the the my big complaint about one two switch? I think a lot of there are twenty eight games, and I feel like a lot of them are similar. Whereas mm. on paper, twenty eight games versus what Jackbox has, which is 
you know, five or six games per party pack. It feels like you're getting more of a value. Uh, but most of those games are so disposable or so similar that once you, you play it, you already have the impression of like, there's nothing more to really see here. Yeah, I think uh, like specifically the quick draw thing and the samurai sword thing, that's the same game. It's just like point the controller at the other person as fast as you can. And that's exactly the same game. And they, they reuse that a couple of times. Uh, the other complaint I have is that even though it's like this party game and one of the modes says two to 20 players, only two people can ever play at a time, which is a big turnoff. And I, wait, how can you do 20? Like what, what are, because, what's their reasoning for that? Because you break into people teams. Be watching. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you break into uh, teams. One goes in one room. The other goes in the other room. Uh, one is a bomber. The other is a, wait, <laughs> wait a second. Uh, so you break into a red and a blue team. That is real. But what you're supposed to do is nominate a player to play that game. So it's like, oh, us three might be on blue team and Alan and what's left of the B team could be on red team. So it's like, okay, Steve's going up and Steve's really good at the quick draw game. So we're going we're gonna to have Alan go up because that might be our only chance to win this round. Mm. And I think what Jackbox does really well is... Mo- like a lot of Jackbox games are can support more than six people. Like uh, Drawful and take TKO can go up to eight people, and then something like Fly Swatter can go up to a hundred people. And I think that's a big like that to me is party, right? <laughs> right, yeah. And then it also like it even has addition. Like if you hit the eight person cap, you still have like audience members or whatever. So it's. Like, even if there's more, they still have something to do. Yeah, like, we had, we had like, 11 people playing TKO when we played at Logan, and the three people that were audience, they were voting, and those votes were mattering towards the shirts. Right, exactly. Whereas, once you switch, you really just two people are contributing in any way. <laughs> yeah. So, that's really all I wanted to say about that. I, I know we talked about Jackbox a lot, and so I just figured that was worth bringing up. But uh, to switch gears a little bit, let's get to... Let's get to some raw business deals, Sean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All my business deals are raw. <laughs> one of my favorite, one of my favorite things about this podcast, and I don't know if I've I've, I've ever said that bef- this before, but as somebody who has never made a board game or or has seen that side of the industry, I like I like yours and Alan's inputs on how to actually make a game and to go through the process. And you guys struggled with. Two Rooms and a Boom, the first game you made, and it shipped over a year late. I think, you know, everyone on the internet and, and my, my neighbor's dog knows that it shipped late, and I think that was the majority of your complaints, right? It wasn't about the game yeah. itself, it was about the shipping. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we could have communicated better. Uh, it was our first, you know, major Kickstarter, and knowing, like, what to communicate and when, and, like, uh, how to sort of, like talk about the internal processes, right, was like a very new thing for us. Uh, and it, of course, it's very easy to communicate what's going on when everything is going totally according to schedule. But it gets a lot of, it gets pretty complicated when things start messing up, knowing like, okay, how, what level of detail do we need to give here? Um, how much do we need to share? What if we don't know? Is it important to say like, this is messed up and we don't have an answer for you yet. We're working on it, you know, all of that like was, you know, part of the learning process. I remember you guys maybe said something about maybe maybe I maybe I dreamt this, but said something about you really wanted to make sure that delivery for World Championship Russian Roulette was 
was correct because that was kind of the biggest problem with two rooms and a boom you guys i think the kickstarter said you should you would ship it february and i received my game on like march 4th sure so i you know i'm not gonna i'm not gonna hold you to four days late but four days late on a kickstarter is like two years early on every other kickstarter (laughs) (laughs) yeah and we shipped out uh games starting in february um and some people were getting theirs like fit march 2nd 1st you know um that kind of thing uh, we we cut it down to the line, but we feel pretty good about like with Kickstarter. It's really about moving forward, making good decisions, right? Communicating where you're at along the way. There are things you just have no control over. Like we had a freight estimate that was supposed to arrive about two and a half weeks before February, but it only really arrived at Amazon like February 27th. You know, and we just you know I contacted our manufacturer and said, hey, like this is really late, and they said, yeah, we'll try to do better next time. There's really, you know, there's really nothing we could do about that. <laughs> so we felt good that we had estimated, you know, correctly. Games are still going out. International customers are still winning in theirs. $50 backers are waiting on theirs. That stuff's still in the pipeline coming out. But it's all moving forward, you know, um, where I think with Two Rooms and a Moon, there were a lot of times where it was like we were stuck. People don't really expect perfection, right? Uh, what they expect is communication and that you're trying hard and not making just total bozo mistakes, right? Um, so I'm I'm really proud of the the World Championship Russian Roulette Kickstarter because it's probably our biggest endeavor to date in terms of people who touched it. You know, we had a, an illustrator, a graphic designer, a game designer, a developer, right, a manufacturer, a producer. Like we had all these different people working on it in different capacities, and so it's a really it's a it's a team effort. Um, not that Tombs and Moon wasn't a team effort, but this one was so much more. You know, we just had a lot of different people doing a lot of different things. Um, and it was exciting to see the game sort of be the sum of its greater than the sum of its parts in that way. Couple questions. First question: What was the big issue, if any issue, for World Championship Russian Roulette that that didn't happen in two rooms and a boom, or was there nothing really that outstanding? Everything seemed to go smoothly. Everything did seem to go smoothly. A lot of we learned a lot of different things. Um, first off, like. Uh, we were working with illustrators and graphic designers for the first time that were outside the company, right? We worked with Adam McIver and Weberson Santiago. Adam McIver, great graphic designer, uh, does a lot of stuff for TMG now. And Weberson Santiago, brilliant illustrator, um, did like the Brazilian version of Coup, um, did the Bloody Inn, um, just some of these really gorgeous games. And so communicating through the language barrier a little bit with Weberson and then just communicating like board games are three-dimensional objects. So things flip, they turn, they twist, right? Icons have to be legible. Uh, You want to have a consistent vocabulary and like discovering that whole process with Adam, who is an amazing graphic designer. I mean, just really incredible. There are not a ton of awesome graphic designers in the board game industry, right? Um, There are some, but like it's a, it's a small field and he is just one of the best uh, for sure. So all of that was sort of a learning experience, I would say, on can our I, end. Can I stop you real quick? Sure. I, I know a lot of designers, just on a personal level, like when I need design work, I feel like I have so many outlets to go to. When you say that there's not a lot of designers in the board game world, is that be- is there a reason for that? I mean, maybe I just don't know, but is it, be- is it because like board games are kind of cheap to make? And so no one wants to pay the cost of, you know, whatever a designer charges an hour or maybe I'm I way think off base. I part of it. No, I think good graphic design is expensive and like 
competent graphic design is cheap, right? Because good graphic design, I think, impacts the way you play and handle the game as well as uh, teaches people how to play the game quicker, right? Like most rule books you've ever read are like just text with diagrams, right? That's what we do. That's what everybody does. But there's so much more that can be done like Crossmaster Arena, that little cute miniatures game if you've ever played, its rulebook is actually a game board. And it starts off where you flip open the first page and it's a tiny like two by two grid and then it's a four by four grid. And it tells you to put your miniatures on the grid and it actually, as you play these tiny little tutorials and it ramps up in difficulty until eventually you're playing on the real board that the game came with. And I thought that was just genius information and graphic design. Um, it was expensive because you had to add in more pages of the book. You had to get more diagrams done, that sort of thing but it made teaching a miniatures game about as quick as you could possibly teach it. So I think that's honestly uh, the biggest thing is just that it's expensive and you can get away with it without it. Board gamers are used to putting up with it, right? They're used to reading big rule books. They're used to having bad icons. I'm like looking at my shelf and like, there's a lot of games that have (laughs) really bad art and one game I really like, but has really mediocre or maybe I would say sub below average art is going, going, gone. (laughs) <laughs> sure yeah i don't know I'm, i don't want to like throw games under the bus but it's yeah, just tough because just games with not 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 good art <laughs> board games particularly under the traditional distribution model are not a high profit margin item right and that graphic design like fixed cost if you spend eight ten twelve thousand dollars that could be everything that could be your profit from your first two print runs right we just sort of believe in a lot probably because i'm a graphic designer <laughs> that huh. it's worth it for us we want to make objects that sort of stand the test of time. Which is something I noticed, if you ever get like an old copy of HeroQuest or Games Workshop's Talisman or whatever, like these games have just beautiful components, right? Even games like Clue have like just really solid looking, well-designed boards and cards. Monopoly does. They become iconic. And you could say they're iconic because they've stood the test of time. But in another sense, like they're just really solid and simple, iconic designs. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's actually fascinating. I, I've really, I mean, I know a good design when I see it, but I, I don't know. I mean, like, I don't know. There is, now that I'm thinking about it, there's a ton of games that really phone it in. Yeah. Part of that is because uh, <laughs> Photoshop really opened, like I pirated a copy of Photoshop when I was in high school and that's how like I learned. I made school play posters, you know, I followed tutorials on the internet <laughs> and once you had, knew a kid who had a copy of Photoshop, like you could really crack open your graphic design, right? Um, that's even how I got my job at Mage Wars, was I designed some game boards for them early on and sent them in, and, and Brian Pope was like, hey, why don't you just come work for us? Hmm. Which was really, you know, fun. But basically, the barrier to entry is lower, which is a good thing. More people are learning graphic design, more people are trying, more products getting made that would have never gotten made before. But then, like, the education it requires to, like, continue pushing yourself as a graphic designer is hard to get. You have to really push yourself. I'm a barely competent graphic designer. And, you know, it's really, really a hard thing. Like, studying typography, icon design, you know, logos, print. And then applying that in a 3D space, like, is also really difficult, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. But I think you, I think you, I mean, like, Two Rooms and a Boom is definitely a great example of design in board games thanks i said on the tuesday night podcast yeah well i mean we try to keep it simple right like um and we had to in that game because our resources were limited and i knew that i couldn't do something really fancy looking like a uh fantasy flight looking game right with all these like beautiful sci-fi textures and stuff like that i think what i miss out on is a lot of board games look like toys 
And there's nothing wrong with that. Like I love, like I said, like I love a games workshop talisman or, or, Mm -hmm. um, or hero quest. Those are toy looking games, but they're also beautifully illustrated to where I feel like they age really well. Where a lot of games right now, like even Netrunner, which is like pretty beautiful and like well done and competent. It doesn't look like it's going to look good five or 10 years from now. Hmm. And it's, you know, hard to say, but we have a lot of really good looking games that are also kind of average. We have a lot of like B pluses, if that makes sense. Um, (laughs) But you don't, we don't have a lot of games that like you look at on the shelf and somebody like comes in your house and is like, what is that? Like, like a criterion collection DVD. Yeah. You ever pick one of those things up and you're like, I just want to watch this. It just looks so cool. (laughs) You know, um, we, there's very few games. Yeah. There's very few games at that level where you pick it up and it's just so beautiful that you're like, what, what is this thing? I'm not even thinking of it as a board game. I'm just thinking of it as an object in your house. Copy of world championship Russian roulette sitting on my desk. Uh, are you, obviously the answer is going to be yes, but are you happy with how the project turned out? Yeah, I was actually really proud. Adam McIver, Alan, and I went back and forth on a lot of the design, graphic design stuff, and we had some hard tasks. You know, Alan uh, knew a lot about how the game needed to play and how icons needed to be interacted with or cards needed to be interacted with, and he would say, it needs this information, this information, this information. Um, and I would say, well, it also needs to look like this and feel like this and blah, blah, blah. And Adam would just be like, cool, how about both of you guys' ideas at once? Like, <laughs> it really went to show, like, when you worked with an expert – we were always afraid, like, oh, how do we get the last draft he designed to, like, how do we give him suggestions to get it where it needs to go? And then we didn't, we realized that, like, he was so good at his job, we could just tell him what we were looking for. You know what I mean? Like, this is how the player's going to interact with it. And it's important that this information be highlighted. Otherwise, it's going to get lost in the shuffle. And he could just get there. Watts did a great job manufacturing it. I think the components are all really high quality, um, but they also worked with us on the costs to say, like, you could spend money on this, you could shave money on that. I'm really proud of the game just as an object in and of itself. And people like it. People like it when they play it. So I'm, I'm excited about that, too. What about Anthony Birch? What are Did you get his thoughts? Obviously, he was the original designer. Am I saying that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's the designer. Uh, we did the development. He got his copies I want to say recently, I shipped his out when we were shipping out, or a little bit before we shipped out the backers, and I know he's excited to play it. We've sort of kept him in the loop, you know, uh, like we just recently have signed rights to a uh, Polish licensed version of the game, and they started sending us art for the Polish version, so I uh, sent him, like, screenshots of that, and he was super pumped. Um, He thinks it looks gorgeous. I think he's really excited to play it, and a lot of the people who playtested it with him in the early days have played it you know, like played the final version and they love it. And they think it's a great sort of expression of sort of the original design he came to us with. So, you know, hopefully he loves it. Uh, he's excited. We've, uh, last time I saw him in person was when we shot the Kickstarter video and we were going through it with him and he just seemed so pumped. He was just really super fun to work with and, uh, just all around a really great guy. Well, I'm excited to play it. I'm, I'm going to PAX this week. Uh, I'm speaking for my other podcasts, which I have said a million times on the show. It's <laughs> a Pokemon podcast called It's Super Effective. So I'm speaking there, and World Championship Russian Roulette is one of the games I plan on packing. Um, oh, awesome. Yeah, just because I've only played it once, and uh, in, in our <laughs> listeners know I'm pretty honest with you guys, especially on air. I've, I've only played it once at Gen Con. Mm-hmm. Uh, I backed the Kickstarter, so I have not played it since, and I've I already opened it, looked through all the pieces. Everything looks great. So uh, I remember just really, really liking it. I know Irene really liked it. So we're going to, you know, 
at the end of the day, after the convention's done and you're you're sharing a hotel room with people, it's nice to have a couple games. And World Championship Russian Roulette isn't like isn't like Power Grid or something where it takes up <laughs> your whole suitcase. Grid of power. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm excited. It's it's really light. It's um it's just that level of of stress and pressing your luck um, with a little bit of bluffing. It's just a very very quick fun play. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Well, happy happy that it shipped. Are are you are you planning on getting it into stores now? Is that is that how it works? It'll be on Amazon next. Um that's our like primary business model. It's just been really simple and really profitable for us to just ship directly to Amazon. We're looking in other ways to get it to like international customers. We sell direct to brick and mortar retailers um for, you know, 50% off plus shipping. So people contact us and we, you know, send them a quote and then they pay via PayPal and we ship them out games for their stores. And that's worked really well for us in the past. Um but other than that, yeah, we've, we're pursuing some different opportunities with World Championship Russian Roulette that I can't super talk about because we haven't signed anything yet. <laughs> um, but it seems like it's got a decent audience of people looking sort of to see how far we can take it, which is exciting. So sort of while that's going on, we're just off to the uh, finishing Boomer Doom, our documentary, and the next game. That's Those are like the next things on our plate. Next game as in the expansion of two rooms or like another game past that? Another game past that. Alan's, you know, playtesting and developing and, and always working on the the next sort of thing. And I'm sort of always like the caboose, like bringing up uh, whatever <laughs> we started working on like three years ago. Wow. Well, let's, uh, let's jump to a different train, shift gears a little bit, even though I don't think trains have gears. <laughs> L- Logan, you played some D&D, you played some other stuff, but you also launched a new D&D podcast which yeah. should be in iTunes now now that it's it is kinda... absolutely in iTunes right now okay now that it's out i know you talked about it a little bit last week but can can you spare a couple minutes to talk about it this week and and how that product turned out for you <laughs> for usbj i can definitely spare a couple of minutes to talk about my own product good good <laughs> tuesday night podcast where we just talk about ourselves forever <laughs> Uh yeah no it's called Very Random Encounters and it's it's in iTunes now. We play we're playing Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition for the first season but we are going to like it's going to be dealer's choice we're going to randomly decide who the next DM is after this season which is an indeterminate amount of episodes but so far it's been tons of fun. Sean helped me a lot actually in giving me a bunch of resources for randomizers and it's I've I've used the uh twitter feed the random rpg generator to like sort mm-hmm. of set a path out for how i want things to play out for our listeners what is what is that do you know that twitter name offhand uh, it's uh, at random dnd uh i've talked about go. it before it's just like a, a seed generator for adventures um i'm a huge dnd fan it's probably one of my first loves in gaming um and so when logan talked about like wanting tools um i was more than happy because i think the biggest problem with D&D for most people getting into it is it seems like a lot of work ahead of time. And I've done so much of my life to basically make it to where I'm ready to play D&D whenever anybody wants at the drop of a hat. <laughs> I want to be able to jump into it like a board game. Yeah. You know, like yeah. it, sh- it should be runnable like a board game, not like in the style of board game, but to where if you've got a few people around, they're like, oh, you want to play D&D? It's like, sure. Yeah. Hop into this dungeon I've built. Like that's more in the spirit of the game to me. Yeah. And it's it has actually... The the resources that you sent me, which were like a page of just a ton of links, it's in addition, it's been like I've been able to inject a extra randomness into it where I didn't think I would be able to, you know? Mm-hmm. 
Oh yeah. Like the uh, the dungeon dozen is a crazy awesome resource that you that you sent me, and I bought the first PDF, but it's just like um like 140 tables of D12 stuff that's whatever. So I just basically like every episode I'm like, okay, well I'm gonna roll one through 144, and that's the page that I'm gonna check on the dungeon dozen and use that chart somehow in this. The, the this dungeon situation. dozen is a roll one D 12 dot blogspot.com. And it's just a blog where literally every entry is just like here. I'm looking at Tuesday, February 21st. It's found in the high level merchant spellbook. roll a D 12 on a seven. It's an invisible shill on 11th. It's besmirched competitor. So they're always just releasing one D 12 charts of just random stuff. Um, it's an amazing resource for people. Um, and not every single chart's going to work for you, but like it gets your brain moving, which I like. So a little, a little inside baseball here. I, uh, I did that. I rolled, I actually, there was a chart in there of like quirks for the villain. And I, so I just, I wanted that to be one of the things for the main boss that they're facing. And I got produces highly ambitious, totally obscene designs for mosaics, then painstakingly <laughs> implemented on walls, floors, ceilings, and uh, industrious by industrious jovial talkative slave creatures so yeah that's <laughs> that's pretty in that's, depth for something randomly generated it is it is yeah the, like the dungeon dozen gets kind of oddly specific and i love it all these all these <laughs> great resources i'm glad you you two are together naming these things off so two things mm-hmm. one logan i want to compliment you on your graphic design i think the album artwork for <laughs> very random encounters is just fantastic. Oh, thanks, man. Very, very happy with how that turned out. Even though I have no part of it, but I'm not <laughs> seeing it. I was very, very happy. So that's 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 part one. Part two of this, I'm gonna put you on the spot. Uh-huh. Is why should people listen to your podcast, your D D podcast, when there are dozens, if not hundreds, of other D D podcasts out there? And before you answer, I'll give you a second. I host a a D&D podcast called Mythical, which is a Pokemon D&D show. And I would say the gimmick there or the, you know, the, the, I don't know another word. I'll just, I'll just stick with gimmick. Gimmick is good. The gimmick there is that each season is something that you can, that can be contained by itself. I think personally, I I find a lot of D&D podcasts uh, or actual play podcast, very intimidating because you you come in, you stumble in upon it, and there's eighty some episodes, and you don't know where to start, and you obviously want to be caught up, but episode one seems so far ago, and that's so much content. I think Night Vale also has that same problem. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, that's just me personally. The other the other twist to it is it's it's Pokemon based, so that helps the listeners from my other po- podcast to kind of. I, I, I feel would call involved. that the gimmick. The, that uh... the gimmick. Yeah, that the other thing is just a format. Like that's, you know, each season is sort of its own contained thing. I, I'd say the gimmick is Pokemon, <laughs> <laughs> but I I would like even though season one and season two and season one point five are their own things in it, each other, they still are providing an overarching story. And I would I would compare that a lot to something like Game of Thrones, where you could spend a whole episode in Game of Thrones following Jon Snow, and you know the next episode you might not see any Jon Snow. But that doesn't right. mean that like that story is done. It's just put on the shelf for, you know, the next two hours before you get to, you know, a season finale or something. Uh, we have a sort of a, a, a similar format, but taken to a maybe a further extreme, which is that we're not even going to have any re- recurring characters like perhaps 
and we haven't gone super in depth into this, maybe one surviving character makes it to the next series. But if they do, it'll be some kind of outlandish explanation because each uh, each season is going to be not only a different DM, but a different system, a different set of rules. And so, I mean, even if you took over a character, you'd have to make a new character sheet. So I think it's very easy for somebody to jump in. Uh, we're we're focusing, we're trying to focus on being very funny. Like that's like, it's a comedy podcast more than it's like a story podcast. You know, uh, we're trying to randomize as many things as possible and then somehow try to make them make sense. So I think the, uh, our gimmick is that, you know, everything is as random as possible. That's, that's what we're trying to strive for. Every, every aspect of the show has a bit of randomness. Like there's secret words, there's a, a million charts that I roll on to determine names or races or whatever and i don't know i i have a ton of fun recording it and i laugh a lot and i just listened to the third episode which is like way far out there now but i laughed a lot at our jokes which is maybe narcissistic but well you're on the right podcast for that (laughs) (laughs) tuesday narcissistic podcast (laughs) um anyway but it like it's making me laugh and i already knew what was coming up you know so i'd say the reason to listen is because it's fun and we're gonna it's gonna be a surprise every time every every episode all right all right cool well i would ask you guys what you've been playing but i think we're a little bit short on time we're still in this transitional period as i call it with tuesday night where we're doing things a little differently uh and that's okay i think that's good and we're the what, what did we say last week? King of Tokyo slash now King of New York. That was a bad. <laughs> no, no, no. We're <laughs> <laughs> it was very bad. It was uh, a super bad uh, thing. We're we're like uh, never mind. We're we're a great metaphor. Yeah, for yeah. An awesome podcast. <laughs> we got tons of things to talk about. Uh, hopefully, I can get Alan on for next week. I would love to hear what he's been playing. I would love to hear his thoughts on World Championship Rush and let that it's out, that it's now out. Sean, congrats to your third kicks, fourth Kickstarter. I don't know, uh, however many you're on to uh, <laughs> Necroboomicon, which finished. Big congrats there. But otherwise, for for our listeners, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can send uh, us an email podcast at tuesdaynightgames.com. And we'll probably, we have a couple emails built up, so maybe we'll do an email show here in the future and just address your emails. Love to get them, whether they're board game or non board game related. If you want to follow uh, Logan on Twitter, it is at Logan Jenkins. If you want to follow Sean on Twitter, it's at Sean McCoy. You can follow me on Twitter, at Dragging a Lake. And finally, if you want to follow just Tuesday Night Games in general, that's also where you can stay up to date with the podcast. That's going to be at PlayTKG. Spelled with a K. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tr- I, I don't even think I needed to say that that time. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a good attempt, though. Uh, <laughs> otherwise... Uh, Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week. Otherwise, this episode is... Banished!